third through fifth graders, you are dismissed to your class, so you can go and head on back. Uh, go, they're doing that, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Now we're going to be starting in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, need time to look that up, that's okay. If you need one, and if you're willing to raise your hand, somebody will be happy to bring you one. Uh, but again, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we are, it's close to the back in what's called the New Testament. Uh, and again, while you're turning there, just a couple of things. Uh, we're starting off a new sermon series this week, um, and I've been given the task of preaching about praise. And so, to do that, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start out with this passage from Ephesians 1. And then after that, I'm really going to walk through um, the, one of the main storylines of the Bible. And so I just want you to know that we'll start with Ephesians 1. Then after that, I'll be walking through really the, the storyline of the Bible. And so I might not be explicitly referencing Scripture. and It'll be in there, I, I promise you that. But I won't be, okay, let's look at this passage, and then this passage, and then this passage so just understand that uh, right from the get-go. I'm not uh, forsaking the Bible. Uh, everything I'm saying is coming from it. I just won't be uh, walking through it per se. Um, because I think if we're to understand praise, what that is, and what it looks like for us here today, I think it'll help us to see uh, the whole story of what's going on in Scripture and seeing what God is up to. Uh, so anyways, that's where I'm going, and just so you have a heads up and know what to expect. Uh, so, Ephesians chapter 1. Again, we'll start there, verse 15. I actually was not planning on using this passage until I started reading it this week, and I read it again this morning. Uh, and what struck me about Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, is that this is, this is the Apostle Paul writing in this uh, book here. And it's a letter he's writing to a group of believers in the church in Ephesus, and starting in verse 15, he writes to them kind of a pastoral prayer for them. And he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, here's the prayer, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's saying, I thank God for you all the time, and I remember you constantly in my prayers. Now, what does he pray for them? Let's look at the following verses. Verse 17, his prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your, heart, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, I, my prayer constantly for you, my fellow believers uh, in Ephesus, is this, that God would give you his spirit, and that his spirit would impart wisdom and knowledge to you, that he would reveal himself more deeply to you, and that you would just grow in, in a, a deeper and deeper knowledge of him, intellectually, but also in uh, the heart as well. Because look what he says after this, at the end of verse 18 that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So what he's saying, he's saying, my prayer is that God would give you this, this spirit of wisdom. He would give you knowledge and insight to basically three things, is what he says in verses 18 uh, through 21 there. He says, first, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's saying, my, my prayer is that the spirit would give you this, this knowledge and wisdom in the, of the hope to which God has called you. Also, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He's saying, my prayer is that the Spirit would give you knowledge of this hope, that he would give you knowledge of this inheritance that you have. And lastly, that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So the last thing is that they would understand the power and the might of the work God has done in their lives in their belief. 
So his prayer for the people is that they would know what God has done for them. And here's what this has to do with praise, the subject today. When we understand what Paul is talking about, when, when God gives us this spirit of wisdom and knowledge and the revelation of him into uh, the hope in w- to which he has called us, into his, the inheritance he's, which he's given us, and into the, the greatness of the power he's worked in us in Christ, we will praise uh, just like we are intended to. And so again, I wasn't planning on using this passage, but as I read it this week and this morning, I thought, I mean, this, like, this, is, this is it. This is the foundation uh, of this sermon. And so my prayer for today is that this would happen, is that God would give us uh, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, that we would have the eyes of our heart enlightened, not just our minds, but the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know uh, our hope, to know our inheritance, and to know the power that he's worked in us who believe. And so before we begin, uh, let's go and pray just that. Uh, So Father, help us today. Lord God, only you can bring about this work in our hearts. Only you can give us uh, this knowledge and this insight and this wisdom. So God, help us to see the hope to which you've called us. Help us to see uh, the glorious riches of the inheritance that you've given us in Christ. And help us, above all, to see the immeasurable greatness of power that you have worked in us who believe. And Lord, and once... We see that, and you've given us that knowledge and that wisdom. I pray that we would pour out our praise back to you. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now, here's going back to the beginning and walking through the whole story of Scripture. And again, I'll be referencing a lot throughout this. Um, But we'll start at a point where we're all familiar. Uh, Genesis 1-1 begins with, In the beginning, God. Four words we're familiar with. In the beginning, God. Right? Just God. In the beginning, there was nothing else. No people, no plants, no animals, no earth, no sun, no moon, no stars, no universe. Nothing, just God. God existing eternally in perfect communion within the Trinity. So for all eternity in the past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fixated on one another, existing in a perfect relationship of love and joy and communion and fellowship and holiness and glory. And so in the beginning, God, existing in perfect fullness within the Trinity. And one day, the story of Genesis goes on, the love and the joy and the holiness and communion within the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it overflows and God begins to create. Now he, he speaks. He says, let there be light. And upon his word, light shines out into the darkness of the newly created universe. And it was good. By the word of his mouth, he creates the sky and the earth and the sea and all the stars of the universe. And it was good. He continues to speak. And as he does so, plants and vegetation begin to sprout up from the ground. Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit according to their own kind. And it was good. But there's more to come. His word continues to proceed from his mouth, and as it does so, animals of all kinds spring up all across the earth. Birds of all kinds fill the skies. Sea creatures, fish, whales, dolphins fill the seas. Land animals of all sorts walk the earth. And it was good. Now, it was, it was all good. The whole canvas of creation is proclaiming the glory of God. So God, who has existed for all eternity in the, the fullness of the Trinity, in that perfect relationship within the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has now gone public with his glory, manifesting it, creating a universe so that it might, his glory might be displayed in it. And as a great painting displays something about its painter, so does the canvas of creation display something of its creator. 
Right? All the, the brilliance and the majesty and the power and the glory of God is poured into his creation so that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of the world through the things that he has made. And so it's all good. All of creation is proclaiming his glory. But he's not done. As beautiful and as majestic as it all is, uh, he has yet to paint his great masterpiece, or to compose his great symphony. His greatest act of creation is still yet to come. Because everything to this point has been good, but this final act of creation will display his glory in a special way, in a way that nothing else in all of creation will. His final act of creation uh, will be made in his image, right? Made to be like him. As his image bearers, they'll be uh, possessed intellectual and mental, emotional, uh, physical and spiritual capacities that nothing in all all of creation will possess. As his image, image bearers, they'll exercise dominion over the rest of creation as an extension of God's authority. As his image bearers, they'll relate to each other in meaningful and personal ways. More than that, and most importantly, they'll relate to God in a meaningful and personal way. Right? His, his image bearers, they'll be caught up into the joy and, and the love and the communion within the Godhead itself. And so we know the story in Genesis 2. God forms the man out of the dust of the earth. And it says he breathes into the man and he becomes a living being. Right? His, his, God's very breath fills his lungs. Right? And as it does so, their heart begins to beat. Their synapses start firing. Their eyes open. And they become a living being. Right? Made in God's own image, filled with his very breath. So that he will uniquely display God's glory in a way that nothing else in all of creation will. So with this final act of creation, God puts his finishing touches on his great work of creation. And if you know the story in Genesis, after the creation of man, it says, and it was very good. All things are working in perfect harmony. No pain, no sickness, no death, no evil, no wickedness, no rebellion. All of creation is proclaiming the glory of God. Man, right, filled with his very, very breath, his image bears, enjoying perfect relationship with one another. More than that, enjoying perfect relationship with God. Now they're walking in the garden, enjoying perfect communion with him. It's his, it's his breath in their lungs. With every breath, they are pouring out their praise to him. But again, we know the story. Right? It's only a matter of time before this idyllic state is broken. See, God has given his image bearers one command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you will surely die. But a crafty serpent enters the garden. And he begins trying to seduce the humans into taking the fruit and eating But this is about much more than just eating some uh, piece of forbidden fruit. Uh, See, what the serpent is doing is he's trying to get the humans to think that their God, their good and benevolent creator, is withholding something good from them. That there's there's more to experience that God has not given them. He wants them to doubt the very goodness of God. He wants them to turn from God as the only source of their lasting joy and pleasure and satisfaction. And he wants them to seek that in something else. And so he begins speaking these lies and questioning the word of God, casting doubt into the hearts of Adam and Eve. Right, and hearing this, again, we know the story. They take of the fruit and they eat and they disobey God. And again, this is more than about just eating a piece of fruit. You see, in that moment that Adam and Eve took that piece of fruit and ate it, they were 
disobeying their God, seeking satisfaction and joy and pleasure in something other than Him. And they were using the very breath of God in their lungs to praise something other than God. This is the ultimate act of blasphemy, the highest act of treason that could ever be conceived of, to use God's very breath in their lungs to pour out praise to something other than him. And the effects of this were immediate and they were tragic. Not only are they expelled from the garden, but once full of life and vitality, they're now spiritually dead, unresponsive to the things of God. Once blissfully unaware of sin, And evil, they now become sinners themselves, doing evil deeds, living in a state of corruption and of sin that touches and taints every facet of their being. They were once aware of the glory of God, that they saw it with their eyes and with the eyes of their heart. They were now blind to it, unable to see the glory and the beauty of their maker. And once friends of God who shared perfect communion with him, they were now separated from him, estranged from their very creator, the one with whom they were intended to share perfect fellowship and the one whose breath is in their lungs. But again, it doesn't stop there. The the sin of Adam and Eve affected much more than just them. Paul says in Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So in other words, now all the offspring of Adam, all his inheritance, will inherit his sinful nature. They'll inherit his depravity so that they will be rebels from the time of their conception. So when we we grow up, when we are born and we sin, we are acting out of the very nature of our humanity because of Adam's sin from the beginning. We have all inherited Adam's sin and his depravity. We're all born with a sinful nature, and because we're all born with that sin nature, we all, like our first parents, have committed the great blasphemy, the great act of treason, and that we all have used the very breath of God in our lungs, and we have poured out our praise to everything but God. We have participated in the great rebellion. And therefore, we have incurred guilt before him. And we're subject to his wrath. We're spiritually dead, separated from God, using his breath to praise anything but him. We are slaves to sin and its power. We live according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and following the prince of the power of the air. That's from Ephesians chapter 2. This is the sad story of the human race. Created gloriously in the image of its creator, filled with his very breath, made to image him and show forth his glory in a special way. But in a great act of rebellion, we have all together risen up. We have looked God in the face and said that our way is better than his way. When again, we have used our, his breath in our lungs to pour out praise to anything but him. And so none of us are righteous. Not one. None of us understand. None of us seek God. We have all turned aside. Together we have become worthless. None of us do good. Not even one. Again, that's Romans chapter 3. We are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we walk, following the prince of the power of the air. We live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and by nature are children of wrath. We are a valley of dry bones, dead and destitute. And we simply do not possess the power to bring life to ourselves. And so Adam's race, God's image bearers, the the apex, the high point of his creation, the pinnacle of his revealed glory. He, He created us to show forth his glory in a special way, but we are now a spiritually dead race, alienated from our maker, filled with sin and rebellion, and refusing to give the proper glory due to our creator. And this is the sad story of the human race. But God's glory is of too great a value to be trampled upon. And he simply will not allow his name to be profaned among the nations as it has been. 
and he has a plan. His plan is to, to vindicate the glory of his name so that all the world may see his glory and know that he is the Lord. And his plan is this, to create a new human race, a new humanity. A new humanity who will be a, a redeemed people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that they might proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into marvelous light. And so to say it another way, God's plan is to save a people, a group of people, that they might declare his praise. So he will vindicate his glory and his holiness through them. Right, he's going to, what he's going to do is he's going to save a people. He's going to make them holy and blameless before him. He's going to give them an inheritance. He's going to adopt them as his sons and daughters. He's going to fill them with his very spirit and conform them to the image of his one true glorious son. Right, hear this. First and foremost, God's plan of salvation to save sinners is first and foremost not about feeling bad for us. It is first and foremost about preserving the glory of his name and vindicating his holiness. Because again, we have all belittled his name, belittled his glory by trampling upon it and pouring out our praise to anything but him. And so God's plan, again, is to redeem a people so that they will declare his praise. And in order to, to do that, he's going to need a new head of this new humanity. All right, so going back to Genesis, Adam was the head of humanity. And his one act of sin brought sin and death and condemnation to all of his race. All right, again, that's in Romans chapter 5. So, but what God is going to do is he's going to send a second Adam a man who will be born of a woman, yet conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that he will be called holy. And this, this second Adam, this last Adam, will be the head of this new humanity who will be redeemed and saved to the praise of his glory. And one day, this second Adam comes, born in the humblest of settings in a manger, in a humble little town. He's no ordinary human. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, he won't inherit Adam's sinful nature that he has passed on to all of humanity. Yet, because he was born in human flesh, he will live a fully human life. He'll be tempted in every way that we have, yet he will not sin. In fact, fast forward to uh, the beginning of his earthly ministry. He's taken into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan himself. Just as the first Adam was. Right, but unlike the first Adam, everywhere that he failed, the second Adam succeeds and exemplifies perfect obedience. The first Adam refused to trust in the word of God. But the second Adam stands firmly on the word of God and trusts him perfectly. The first Adam is seduced into disobeying God, but the second Adam, again, obeys God perfectly. The first Adam seeks his joy and satisfaction elsewhere, but the second Adam, even in the weakest of circumstances, refuses to seek his satisfaction from anything but God. And in his perfect life, the second Adam fulfills all righteousness living the, the perfect, sinless, righteous life on behalf of his people, of this new humanity. And eventually, the second Adam is arrested by his own people, and he's condemned to be executed on a Roman cross. Right, the king of glory, the son of man, died one of the most painful and humiliating and excruciating deaths possible at the hands of a bunch of sinners. Yet this is much more than a, a corrupt trial that led to the, the condemnation of a, a, an innocent man. 
right, Isaiah 53, we know it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And by having him put to death, Satan was unwittingly fulfilling the perfect plan of God. See, at the cross, Jesus bore the sins of his people in his body. So that when the wrath of God came down on him, it was coming down on the people of God. So that there will be no wrath left for their sin. Their sin will have been paid for at the cross. Right? He paid the price we couldn't pay by dying the death we deserved. So that means that your sin, my sin, and our rebellion, past, present, and future, has been paid for at the cross of Christ. Right? God's wrath on our sin has been poured out. Jesus drank the full cup of God's wrath so that there is not a drop left for us to drink on our own. But there's more. Not only was our sin credited to Jesus on the cross, but his perfection, his righteousness that he fulfilled in his perfect life on earth has now been credited to all who would believe in him by faith. And so by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. The first Adam. By his, his sin, his rebellion, all those who would come after him in his race, who are united to him, are joined in his sinfulness and his rebellion and therefore share in his condemnation, so will the second Adam. Right? By one act of righteousness brings life and righteousness to all who would come after him. And so it is that Jesus is the head of a new humanity, a new race, if you will. We'll be filled with God's spirit. We'll be counted as righteous before God, justified and reconciled to him. And all people who are joined to Christ by faith become members of this new humanity. So all of us, when we we believed on the name of Jesus, it was much more than just uh, believing and now, okay, my life's all the same. We may not have felt much different, but at the root, we were being united to Christ and we were being made a part of a new humanity, a new race of people, of spirit-filled people who have been given a new heart and a new flesh. We've been justified before God, counted righteous before him so that there's no condemnation. We now have perfect right standing with him. We're holy and blameless before him. We're his adopted children. We have now been given an inheritance. This is what happened the moment that we believed upon the name of Christ and were saved. In a split second, this happened instantaneously. But behind the scenes, there's more going on in the story. Right, we're familiar with that part of the story. We hear that a lot, and for good reason. You can't hear it too often. Right, but there's more going on behind it. Right, see, man's condition, our, our sinful condition is so dire. Our sinfulness runs so deep and so great. That we don't possess the power to believe on the name of Jesus in our own power. All right, Ephesians 2. We are spiritually dead, unresponsive to the things of God. 2 Corinthians 4. We are blind to the glory of the gospel. So that even when we hear it, we can't see it with the eyes of our heart. And so we're blind to his glory in it. Ezekiel 37, we are a a valley of dry bones, utterly devoid of life. And so we don't need help. We don't need a a push in the right direction. We don't need a, a crutch. We need new life. We need power. We need God, by an act of sheer grace, to come and intervene and to make us alive again. And all praise and glory and honor to our God, because this is exactly what he does. Right? 
back in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. So get that. We were, we were dead in our trespasses, unresponsive, doing evil deeds, following the passions of our flesh. Yet God, by his sheer grace, makes us alive with Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's what that's saying in 2 Corinthians 4. Immediately before that, he says, right, but to those who are perishing, they're blind to the glory of the gospel. Then he says, but God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you and I believed on the name of Jesus, we heard the gospel and we believed it for the first time. What was going on is that God, by his grace, shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Right, think of, he almost uses the imagery from Genesis 1-1 when God says, let there be light. And he says that, and there's light, and it shines out into the darkness. And he's saying, this is what God has done in our hearts to enable us to believe. So we, our hearts are darkened, dead, and he says, let there be light. And light comes, and we, gives us eyes to see and ears to hear the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 37, the account of the dry bones. He tells Ezekiel, the prophet, walks upon these dry bones, a valley full of just dead, dry bones, nothing on them. And he asks Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Seems like a redundant question, but Ezekiel says, you know, O Lord. And God says to him, Right? Prophesy to these bones. And Ezekiel begins to speak. He begins to preach the word of God. And as it's preached, it says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. In that passage, God, by his grace, puts flesh on the dead bones. And then did you catch what he did after he put the, the flesh and the sinews back on them? It says, I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. And here's the part. And put breath in you and you shall live. He breathes life back into them, into their once dead souls. See, God does far more than just make a way for people to be saved. He doesn't just make a way and leave it up to us. He doesn't just throw out a life preserver and leave it up to us whether or not we'll grab it. He saves us. We were dead at the bottom of the ocean. No breath in our lungs. He dives in, brings us up, breathes life back into us, and saves us. All of us, by an act of sheer grace, while we were still a pile of dead and dry bones in the desert, We were dead in sin. We were blind to his glory. Yet by his grace, he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, breathed life into us and made us alive with Christ. And we are joined us to him by our faith. So we are declared right before him. We are adopted into his family. Once again, filled with his spirit, filled with his breath, so that we will praise God. His name. All right, this is, this is a, give you a little bit of theology. This is something known as regeneration. 
right? Regeneration is that act of God in his grace whereby he makes us alive with Christ. And when we're regenerated, we believe and we are saved. Right, and so all of us who in here, who are in Christ, we were regenerated. Our dead souls were made alive with Christ by the power of his resurrection. God breathed into us by his Holy Spirit. This is something also, it's also called the new birth. Jesus says, John 3, anyone who's not born again cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about this. In order to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. We must have the Holy Spirit breathe that life back into us. We must be regenerated. Right? In, in that act of regeneration, he lays sinews back on us, gives us flesh, breathes his Holy Spirit back into us, making us alive. Right? His breath, his spirit once again fills our lungs. Our eyes are open to his glory so we can now see his glory. Right? And having been made alive we, and given eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we turn to Christ in faith and are saved. And having been saved, having had life breathed back into us by the Spirit of God, we once again use his breath in our lungs to pour out our praise back to him. Right? And this is the plan of God in salvation. And it has been from the beginning. Right, to save a people, to redeem a people, to fill them with his spirit, give them a new heart and a new flesh so that they will pour out their praise back to him. Isaiah 43, 20 to 21. This is talking about uh, Israel after he had freed them for, through the Exodus event from Egypt. He says, the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. To give drink to my chosen people, for the people whom I formed for myself, get this last part, that they might declare my praise. God saved his people from Egypt, brought them out in the Exodus event, so that they would declare his praise. Ezekiel 36. Again, speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. So what, what he says there is, Ezekiel 36 is actually a prophecy that is foretelling the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that will come after Christ comes. And so he says, listen, here's what I'm saying, Israel, I'm about to act... And I'm about to do it for the sake of my holy name. First and foremost, again, God's plan of salvation is not about us. It's about him and the glory of his name. And he goes on to say in Ezekiel 36, again, foretelling the coming, regenerating work of the Spirit. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Now catch this last part. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord. God's plan of salvation was to make his people alive by the power of the resurrection of Christ, fill them with his spirit so that they would walk in obedience and constant praise to him so that his glory would be proclaimed among the nations of the world and his whole, the holiness of his name would be preserved and made known. 1 Peter 2.9 uh, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Right? The, the point remains in all these passages. God has saved us for the glory of his name. 
He has saved us that we might, by the power of his Holy Spirit, declare back to him unending praise. And so now, us here today, right, what does this mean for us and how we praise? So the reality now is that all of us in here who have been saved, secure by our faith in Christ, we have been saved by God for the glory of God. Right? Just think of all these passages. We, we once were dead in our sin, a pile of dry bones. We were blind to the glory of our God, living in the passions of our sinful flesh, using God's breath in our lungs to pour out praise to anything but Him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive again with Christ. He's given us a new heart, a new spirit. He's adopted us as his children, given us a glorious inheritance. And that new heart and new spirit that he's given us now enables us to give back true praise to him. He has saved us for this very purpose. Called us out of darkness and into his light that we might proclaim his excellencies, his perfection, his glory that we might declare his praise and his name among all the nations of the world. All right, Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He tells us we are saved not because of our own works in righteousness, but because of his mercy. By the washing of regeneration, where it's actually in there, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so now, having had the Holy Spirit breathe life back into us, having been saved by the sheer grace of God, again, the only proper way, the only proper thing to do is to pour out our praise to him. The only proper thanksgiving we can give. And so now, as his redeemed people, whom he called out of darkness, we proclaim his excellencies all of our days. Now, we don't do that just in our singing on Sunday morning. We pour out our praise to him in the work we do during our week. By by working hard, by working honestly, by working to his glory. We pour out our praise to him in the way we love our wives and our kids, the way we love the other people around us. We pour out our praise to him in the way we use our money. We pour out our praise uh, in the way we spend our time, in in the things we watch, in the things we listen to, in the words we speak, in our thoughts, in our actions. God has saved us and filled us with his spirit, not so we could just go on and keep living like the rest of the world. In fact, if we are truly filled with his spirit, have had that life breathed back into us, we have had, we've been given a new heart and a new spirit so that we can't go on living just like we used to. That's what Ezekiel 36 is all about. I will give them a new heart of flesh, a new spirit. I will give them my spirit and cause them to walk in my ways and obey my statutes. Right? Not that we'll be perfect. We know we're in a constant uh, progress of, of submitting to the Holy Spirit and of, of having him bear fruit through our lives. But the reality is, is, if we have our lives bear no change whatsoever, if we have no new affections for God, no desire to praise his name or for his glory, then chances are the work of regeneration has not been wrought in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Because God says, when that happens, when I breathe my spirit in you, he will change you. Like, you don't even have a choice in it. He will change you. And so the challenge for us who are in Christ here today is to be submissive to the Holy Spirit. Right? Allowing him to, again, bear fruit through us. Allowing him to change our hearts, to bring in us new affections 
for God in our hearts, allowing him to change our minds and transform them so that we don't have a new love for God, a, a true desire for his glory, a true desire to know him above all things. And so again, for us here who are in Christ, uh, we have been saved by the sheer grace of God for the praise and the glory of God. And that goes for every area of our lives. Singing in church on Sunday morning, working on Tuesday afternoon, at home, every aspect. All right, now, I also know that there's a sad reality in here that, that some of you in here have not experienced this salvation. You are still a pile of dry bones, still following the prince of the power of the air, still dead in your sin. If you have not experienced the washing of regeneration that Titus 3.5 talks about, and the new life given by the Spirit, you are still in your sin. You are still dead, and you are still in desperate need of being made alive by the Spirit of God. So maybe you've even been coming to church for most of your life. Right? You, might, you might sing along with the songs. You might, you might pray the prayers and, and utter the words of praise. But that's mere lip service. Because the, the reality is, even if you're singing those words, if those words are coming from a dead, unregenerate heart, that you are still using the breath, God's breath in your lungs to pour out your praise to anything but him. Right? You, you might be praising God in your words, but that praise ultimately is hollow and it's empty. And empty and hollow praise is no praise at all. The only true praise and the only true worship is that which flows from a new heart that has experienced the regenerating power of the Spirit. And so unless you've experienced that, then ultimately your praise and your worship is false idol worship. Because your heart has not been made alive. You've not been given a new heart and a new spirit. And so, to you in here today, I say, repent. Turn from your sin of false idol worship. Right? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. For the first time, see his glory. That, the, that God may shine the light into your darkness, that you might see his glory. That you would receive the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, and for the first time, feel him, the Spirit, fill you. That his breath would fill your lungs, and for the first time, you would legitimately pour out praise to your maker. The praise that you have robbed him of, the praise that he has long been due and has always been due. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I'll end with this, just a, a personal story. All right. I grew up going to church. I didn't like to sing very much. You can ask my family that. But I sang some of the songs. I memorized two versions of the Lord's Prayer. I memorized the Apostles' Creed. I knew the right things. I knew, I knew how to go through the liturgy in our church service. I gave lip service and lip praise to God. But in reality, I had not experienced the washing of regeneration. I may have said I believed on the name of the Lord Jesus, but I didn't. And it wasn't until at a Christian camp when I'm 16 years old, I hear the gospel. Now, I had heard the gospel a number, a number of times. And every time, nothing. I, I heard it, maybe felt convicted, and that was it. But for whatever reason, that one night, I'm 16 years old, sitting in chapel, speaker shares the gospel. And for the first time in my life, it clicks. And the only way I know how to describe it 
It's exactly how it's described in scripture. That God, by his grace, made me alive. He breathed his Holy Spirit into me. He said, let light shine into the darkness so that you may see the glory of my son in the gospel. I was was a pile of dry bones, but that that night he put flesh and sinews on me. He, He breathed his spirit into me. And for the first time, I believed. I, I, it clicked. And so I, I share that just because I know that so many people have a similar experience. That maybe you've gone to church forever and you've known, you've offered lip service and praise to God. But in the end, unless you've experienced the washing of regeneration and a new heart and a new flesh, you will not utter true praise back to God. doesn't mean you'll be perfect. I'm certainly not. But I can tell you, since that day, God has begun a work in me whereby he is changing and constantly transforming my affections for him and my desire to to sing praise to him and to praise him in in every work and everything that I do. So my prayer is that he would do the same work not experienced that yet. Now, even today, you might walk out of here with a new heart and a new spirit within you. And for us in here who are in Christ, right, Philippians 1.6 says that God has begun a good work in us, and he will bring that good work to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Right, he'll complete it. He'll bring us home to the glorious inheritance which he has purchased for us. stand with me and pray uh, before we close a song of praise to our God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, name above all names, maker of the heavens, creator of the universe, Lord of glory. God, we attribute to you all the glory you are due this morning. Father, help us to see just how far off we were. Help us to see the darkness in which we once walked. Help us to see how dead we were in our sin. Ultimately, that we might know what is the power of the work that you brought about in us when you raised Christ from the dead. Lord, help us to appreciate and understand exactly what you've done for us in saving us. Help us to see your grace, not only with our eyes and our minds, but with our hearts. And Lord, now, for those of us in here who have experienced the washing of regeneration, who have been filled with your spirit, God, we pour out our praise back to you. May we do this not only now, but every day this week thought and every action and every word that we speak.